the book of Acts and chapter 2, an extract from Peter's sermon following the events of the day of Pentecost. Verse 14, then over the page to verse 36 onwards. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the Gospel according to Luke, written in Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. The road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, 
How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Those first days after the resurrection were a period of total reassessment for any Jew living in Jerusalem at the time, as indeed they are for anyone of any age, not for you and for me the history of their nation and of God's dealings with their predecessors was very familiar. Most of those who listened to Peter's sermon knew it, and so too did the two disciples making their way slowly and sadly back to Emmaus. Uh, What they had expected was a Messiah who would redeem Israel, not one who appeared to be weak and condemned shamed and indeed dead. How, if at all, uh, did they must have asked themselves, did the recent events fit in with that history and lead to that redemptive destiny? Was the crucifixion not the end of all hope? Did the harsh and undeniable reality of death not mark irrevocably the dying of a dream? A phrase which has struck me uh, this year in Passion Tide is actually one that comes out of the previous incident recorded by Luke. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Even the women had gone to the tomb, assured that they would find there Jesus' dead body and were prepared to deal, deal with it in the way which Jewish contemporaries would. The disciples were gathered together as a group of defeated and disheartened followers whose commitment to Jesus must have seemed to them to have come to a sudden and final full stop, the death of hope. And Thomas continued a doubter, a disbeliever, as the, prophet, as the disciples themselves had been. And as for the two who walked to, on the road to Emmaus, 
speaking to the still unknown stranger about the events of the last few days. They said he was a prophet, and our priests handed him over to be sentenced to death, and we had hoped, note the past tense throughout, we had hoped uh, that he was going to redeem Israel. And if they then spoke of claims made by the women, claims of an empty tomb, they reported it from the standpoint of disbelief, though their hearts were burning within them. How could anyone know? How could anyone known to have been killed and buried rise from the dead? You will not find life beyond this death. And into that dark emptiness came Jesus' voice to the Emmaus disciples, a voice not of desperation, but of creative purpose. He spoke surely not out of condemnation, but out of love for them. You foolish and slow of heart to believe, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then at the table, as they ate together, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And as he disappeared from their sight, so came the release from doubt and despair and the acceptance that they were all to be transformed by having discovered this truth. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not there. He is risen indeed. There's a struggle going on, of course, a struggle at one level between good and evil, between life and death. The battleground had been clearly set out for Jesus from before his birth. It was there unavoidably in the Old Testament. The servant must be the suffering servant, knowing being despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, destined to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And at the outset of Jesus' ministry, he came face to face with the evil one, and as he confronted uh, the power of Satan in the desert and saw that power focused on his own person, so he resisted and overcame it. But it was a struggle, too, for the disciples between truth and falsehood, between spirit and flesh. The flesh said, with conviction and reason, that death is no doubt the end, that all human experience confirms that that is so, that there's no doubt in the mind of the disciples about the reality of Jesus' death, no suggestion that somehow the Roman military had botched the job and had left Jesus in some kind of trance-like state from which he somehow recovered. The soldiers knew what they were doing and how to do it. They were expert in the, about their gruesome business. No, despite all the disciples had observed in the years of their discipleship, the miracles of healing and even the raising of the dead, all their human experience uh, persuaded them uh, that this was, the Calvary was the end. There was and could be no new life. Hence their astonishment 
when they heard suggestions of the empty tomb, hence the not unreasonable skepticism of Thomas, hence the hopelessness of Cleopas and his friend as they left the city. But there was another wisdom at work, God's wisdom. Christ crucified was the wisdom of God and the power of God. If the events of the Passion were perceived by the world to be evidence of the foolishness of God and of his followers and the weakness of God and even the death of God, they were revealed by God to those who had faith to be at the heart of his plan of salvation, the means by which uh, human sin might be dealt with, the way to reconciliation, the doorway to eternal life, the divine and ultimate victory over evil. This here was God's love and power displayed in his apparent weakness and defeat. There is, of course, mystery here, but if it is a truth human reason cannot lead us to, we need to hear uh, God's revelation. For the core disciples, truth was to be seen as Jesus entered their space and spoke with them, showed his love for them, and exposed uh, the truth from the Old Testament to them. The marks in his hands and feet and pierced side could be seen and even touched. For those on the road to Emmaus, the revelation was first by the interpretation of the scriptures and later by the way in which uh, Jesus uh, took the bread and broke it and gave it to them. When they told the disciples back in Jerusalem what had happened and how they'd come to accept the truth, the disciples could hardly have failed to see the unmistakable reminder of the meal they had shared with Jesus only a few days previously, which was to become the pattern of worship for every succeeding generation, as it is for us this morning. Paul was shortly to give them instruction about the way in which they should worship, Uh, share the divine meal and know that that meal prefigured the divine banquet when we shall all meet uh, with our Lord in person. And so if the events of the passion and the resurrection are the apotheosis of our faith, the struggle between good and evil, between spirit and flesh, between faith and doubt are the experience of every Christian. Yes, we live in a world which is limited by the human body and mind, a world and a society which still laughs at the foolishness of faith and rejects any claim of resurrection. But we also live in a world, thank God, where God speaks, where the Spirit moves, when we can assert the reality of another and greater kingdom. By faith, we look at what took place and we see not weakness and defeat but God's wisdom and power and salvation manifest on the cross. Here indeed is the salvation of the new Israel. As with the disciples at Emmaus, God still reveals himself to us, meets us in word and as we worship. 
if only we will open ourselves to him and be alert to his presence and his teaching. As Tom Wright says in this passage, but the curse of sin has been broken. God's new creation, brimming with life and joy and new possibility, has burst in upon the world of decay and sorrow. We can understand the Emmaus couple rushing back to the city to share their experience with the disciples. But I like to think that later and frequently during the lives that they had yet to live. They fell silent as they recalled their experience and as they were filled with thanksgiving and the need simply to worship. As Graham Tomlin says in his book, Looking Through the Cross, the best theology begins and ends in silence as we stop our idle chatter and listen to what God has to say. Amen.